0: Regulation
1: after I think there are outdated regulations that need to be changed. New made. government regulations, There's which were created to protect
2: the The employees regulations are $1.8 trillion. Dollars There's a regulation,
1: regulation that doesn't make any sense. Why do you keep it? Is this
2: it? really the best we can do? Welcome to the Regulatory Transparency Project's fourth branch podcast series. All expressions of opinion are those of the speaker.
0: Good afternoon and welcome to the Federalist Society's fourth branch podcast for the Regulatory Transparency Project. My name is Colton Grob. I'm the Deputy Director of RTP. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the guest speakers on today's call. If you'd like to learn more about each of our speakers and their work, you can visit regproject.org where we have their full bios. After opening remarks and discussion between our panelists, we will go to audience Q&A. So please be thinking of the questions you'd like to ask our speakers. This afternoon, we're pleased to host a conversation exploring the FTC's Remedial Authority process and suggestions for reform. Solana Ganz is the Vice President and Associate General Counsel at NCTA, the Internet and Television Association, and she'll be moderating today's conversation. I'll now hand it off to her to introduce the rest of our speakers and kick things off. Svetlana?
3: Great. Thank you so much, Colton, and thank you and RTP for hosting this discussion today. I will briefly do some bios of our speakers and we'll dive right into the program because we have a lot of content to cover. Uh, First, we have James Cooper. He is the Associate Professor of Law and Director of the Program on Economics and Privacy at George Mason Law. Uh, James previously served as a Deputy uh, and Acting Director of the FTC Office of Policy Planning. He served as an Attorney Advisor to Commissioner Bill Kvostick. And more recently, he served at the Bureau of Consumer Protection as an economic advisor. James has written on antitrust and consumer protection topics, including on informational injury issues. Next, we have Andrew Stivers. He's the deputy director of the FTC's Bureau of Economics, focusing on consumer protection issues. The Bureau of Economics is one of the three bureaus at the FTC, it evaluates the economic impact of FTC actions by providing economic analysis for competition and consumer protection investigations, proposed settlements, and rulemaking. Andrew has expertise on a vast array of consumer protection issues, including consumer financial protection, privacy, data security, and advertising. Next, we have Baron Soka. He's a senior fellow with Tech Freedom. Tech freedom is a nonpartisan and nonpolitical think tank in DC. Barron has written extensively on FTC authority, process, and reform issues and has testified at FTC hearings, workshops, and on Capitol Hill. Next, we have John Villafranco. He's a partner at Kelly Dry, where he focuses on representing an array of clients on advertising and consumer protection issues before the Federal Trade Commission, state attorney general investigations, and in private litigation. John serves as the chair of the ABA Antitrust Section's Big Data Project, and as well as the editorial chair of the Section of Antitrust Law's comments to the FTC on its 21st century Hearings. He has also written extensively on FTC practice, including an article with me on FTC process and reform issues. Thank you all to our expert panel for being here today. So first I'd like to turn it over to James Cooper uh to tell us a little bit more about the scope of FTC Remedial Authority to kick off this panel.
4: Yeah, uh, uh thanks Lana and it's uh it's great to be here uh on this call. Thanks for inviting me to talk about something that I uh spent a lot of time thinking about, both uh inside the, the building at six hundred Pennsylvania Avenue and uh in my academic career. So uh, and certainly, kind of a hot topic now. Who would have thought that uh, remedies? Uh, I always try to convince my students that uh, last semester that uh, remedies under the FTC Act are, are really the the hottest topic going. I, I don't know if I was successful, but uh, maybe if some are listening, I'll, I'll I'll continue to convince some people. But um, so uh, we could really spend a long. Uh, the, the FTC Act is has got a lot of little nooks and crannies. Uh, we could spend a long time talking about it, but I'll try to be uh, try to be brief. So I wanted, when you think about remedial authority for under the FTC Act, I, I'm going to break it into the three broad buckets. Uh, you think about admin, uh, administrative uh, uh, <clears throat> administrative actions; those are the ones that are brought in house. Uh, and then there are, there are rule violations, which could be brought in house or in federal court. And then there's uh, uh, 13B uh which we'll talk about we'll probably spend a much, much of the time today talking about so um admin uh uh admin um cases that's when again the f t c brings something through their in house uh, uh, a l j uh, uh procedure uh, administrative law judge uh the remedies there the f t c cannot get uh money they can get a cease and desist order um on the uh, these are often uh 20 years that's kind of the norm there has been some uh some deviations from that but 20 years is the norm these orders uh provide injunctive relief you know essentially stop violating stop violating the law then there's typically some type of what's called fencing in relief which is stop doing certain engaging in certain practices that 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 may make it more likely that you're able to violate the law maybe with, without detection uh, there can be corrective advertising there's consumer notification uh are reporting requirements uh some of these uh uh and again in, in recent years or in in the last couple years uh spurred on I, I, commissioner chopra's has is has been making these orders a little more intrusive with more reporting and uh uh more ftc oversight on uh uh <coughs> in in the process now that's not the the so that that's how a an administrative case will 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 end. It will end. It will not end in money. However, it doesn't mean that the FTC can't potentially get money from an administrative order. So, Section 19 of the FTC Act allows the FTC to take a final administrative order, not a consent, uh, not something that's been consented to, into a federal court, uh, and and get uh rescission, reformation, refund of money, payment of damages and notification. You can't get punitive damages and you can get this if the the violation of the FTC Act that was, you know, subject to this final administrative order is something that a reasonable person under the circumstances would have known is was dishonest or fraudulent. So it's not everything. It, it and uh so you can go you could take your, your order and go into the court and get money on this certain class of action. Now, this has not been used by the FTC, I believe, um, since the early ni- late eighties or early nineties, a case called Figgy involving heat detectors. I think that was the last time. There may have been another Section nineteen action that was begun but settled. Um and I, I, I could be wrong about that, but it's not something that, that that's really um used. Um, second the uh way to potentially get money from an administrative order would be um would be applying it to third parties so this is what's sometimes called as a synopsis where you need to the, the, the statutory language says that uh you can if if other third parties have actual knowledge that the conduct they're engaging in violated a previous final administrative order, then you can go uh you can go to court and get civil the FTC can go to court and get civil penalties. Um, how is this often done? Uh it, first of all, it's it's very, very rarely done. Maybe the last time was uh I think some uh bamboo cases, uh bamboo fabric cases about ten years ago. But I'm not not exactly sure. John may would probably know more about the lay of the land there. Um and and that's often done by taking an order and 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 sending it out to people in the industry to say, "Hey, this we found uh, we we found this to be an un, a violation of Section Five, and we're putting you on notice that this conduct's a violation of Section Five. So now you're on notice. You now have actual knowledge. Um, so so if you engage in it, then we can invoke this Section Five M. Uh, and then finally uh you can get civil the f t c can get civil penalties uh against the party to whom the order applies against uh if they violate the order as we saw that that with uh facebook five billion dollars so you can get it up to uh it's been recently adjusted for inflation and i think it's 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 about forty four thousand dollars per violation at section five um five l so those are ways you can get get money out of out of admin now. Uh, um, there are rule violations. Uh, again, now, you could bring a rule violation as an administrative um, action, but you, you could also go in, uh, also under Section 19, you can go into federal court. The FTC can go into federal court and get the same type of damages, rescission, reformation, refund of money, payment of damages, notification. Again, you can't get a penalty. You can't get punitive damages. But um, that would be for what are called trade regulation rules or those sort of rules that are either promulgated under the FTC's rulemaking authority under consumer protection, which which doesn't happen, um, or which are – so they, they may be artifacts of the, the days when uh, you know, the FTC was promulgating a lot of these trade regulation rules or they're rules in the uh, – that the FTC has promulgated under other authority, congressional granted authority that are – or that are treated as if they were violations of section 5. So, uh um then you could the uh, the, uh, the FTC can get civil penalties if there is a knowing violation of a rule. Now, what is no, knowing is uh you actually know that that this is um that what you're engaging in is an unfair and deceptive practice that's prohibited by the rule, or do you have knowledge fairly fairly implied? So under Section 5M1A, the FTC can go into court and get civil penalties there. And then finally, there are some rules, for instance, COPPA, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, is an example where Congress uh, gave the, uh, the FTC APA rulemaking authority to promulgate a rule and then also gives them civil penalty authority Specifically uh, under that rule. Okay, so so finally, let me now turn to 13B, which will be really where we'll kick off a lot of our discussion. So so section 13B is it allows this is the the, the section of the FTC Act that that is used by the FTC to go into federal court uh, under section five and 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 often with with rules and, and as part of the complaint as well to get equitable monetary relief. Now. This comes from a generic provision, and this is why it's uh there they, why it's somewhat controversial it comes from a generic provision in the f t c um act that allows it to get a um a preliminary injunction or temporary restraining order or uh or in uh proper cases uh get as the as the language says may seek a a permanent injunction so um, how this there, – there are two predicates here, which are – which are, uh, uh, or, or there's one predicate that the FTC has to have reason to believe that the party is violating or about to violate some part of the FTC uh, Act or some rule that the FTC enforces. Uh, that is actually – what that actually means uh, is currently there, uh, a petition for cert and, and shire pharma before the Supreme Court – you know what, is, uh, what does does it mean to be violating or about to violate, and and how how much discretion does the FTC get in its determination of that, uh, and then you notice that this section 13b in no way mentions equitable monetary relief. It just talks about a permanent injunction in proper cases. So um, what has happened though is this has risen out of what's called the FT what was the FTC's fraud program in the in the 80s where the FTC said you know we could use this section 19 we could get an admin order we could go in and get a temporary restraining order then go back and get a final litigated administrative order and then we could use section 19 to go back with this order and get damages or since we're already invoking the court's equity equity jurisdiction we can just get a permanent injunction and anything else that a federal court can do in um in in equity uh and that is courts have taken that and that is that has been the basis for where the FTC can get um equitable monetary relief uh you know restitution whatever you call it restitution disgorgement we'll talk about the the the, the details and uh uh of, of what that means, what, what exactly that entails how courts have interpreted that and then the 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 legal challenges that have that have come up around that so I'll stop now uh hopefully uh uh I, this is enough to get us started on uh on on the remedial authority that the ftc has
3: great thank you so much james um so john the supreme court last week issued a decision in sec versus Lou that discussed an enforcement agency's equitable monetary relief authority can you uh, describe uh generally what that case held and uh, your views on how it may impact FTC Equitable Monetary Relief Program.
5: Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, so in lieu, the Supreme Court held, and I'm going to quote from there the opinion, a disgorgement award that does not exceed a wrongdoer's net profits and is awarded for victims is equitable relief. So there, And there are a few important points and limitations to Lou. Uh in lieu, the court held that disgorgement is available in equity, provided that it is not deposited into the Treasury funds. Rather, all funds must be returned to consumers. And this is a really big deal, in my mind, because uh, typically the FTC will uh, obtain large amounts of money in monetary w- awards, but a, a, a small percentage actually makes their way to consumers. And I looked at the, the most recent number that I had was from 2017 where the FTC obtained over $5 billion in monetary awards and returned $269 million to consumers, so just a little over 5%. Um, Lou does not impose joint and several liability. Um, the defendants may be held liable for, quote, such profits only as have accrued to themselves. Um, and this is also important, because the FTC often um, pursues joint and several liability, and Lou could be read to limit the commission's ability to seek money from individuals as well as entities like payment processors and other service providers. Um, At a minimum, uh, I think that obtaining money from these individuals or entities is going to require more work for the commission. Uh, Lou also considers and deducts legitimate business expenses. The FTC typically seeks gross profits, and this limitation will introduce an additional point of contention regarding what qualifies as legitimate. Um, If the, you know, so Lou, of course, I think, as everybody knows, involved the SEC, um, but if the court reviews section 13B of the FTC Act and determines it permits restitution disgorgement, these restrictions which limit disgorgement to the form in which the remedy was historically permitted at at equity uh, likely will apply, in my view. I also think there's a good chance that the court will take up the petition. Lou is very clearly limited to the Securities Act, and, um, and they took up Lou even after Kokesh. Uh, again, the, the holding is specific to the Securities Act. Uh, and that it's important to note that it was drafted differently than Section 13B. Section 13B authorizes injunctive relief, while the Securities Acts Act provides more broadly for equitable relief. I also think it's important to note that Lou is a text-based opinion, which I believe is the primary reason it had the support of eight of the justices. Um, you know, and while the opinion cited uh, Porter v. Warner Holding Company, it, it's unlikely in my mind that Alito, uh, Justices Alito and Kavanaugh, would agree with the FTC absent strong textual support. So I, I don't see that support in the language of Section 13B, which focuses on the term injunction, versus the SEC Act, which focuses on, on equitable relief. And I could tell you that uh, almost immediately Lou... The LU decision was in play. I mean, previously we uh, we know that the Solicitor General had requested an extension for the Supreme Court's ruling on the FTC's petition for cert following the Seventh Circuit decision in FTC v. Credit Bureau Center. But last week, right after the the, the, the Liu decision came down, both the FTC and Abby v cited the decision to the to the Third Circuit, where the FTC is defending a 2018 antitrust order for the drug manufacturer. Uh, And it's affiliate for a drug manufacturer, and it's affiliate to disgorge profits from the sales of androgel. And uh, what both sides are claiming uh, victory, more or less. The FTC claims uh, in in that case that the Lou decision clarifies that disgorgement is not a penalty and is a permissible form of equitable relief. And Abby V. points to the text arguing that the word injunction is, is not a term used to describe the monetary awards of wrongdoers' profits um a uh, number of questions remain i mean does the text of cer- section 13b again the word injunction allow for the full spectrum of quote equitable relief and if so will the same limits be placed on the ftc's authority will the ftc only be allowed to disgorge net profits i mean it, it seems like the answer to that might be yes if net profits remains a standard what will the, be the burden of proof and and does this approach reward fraudsters uh, as the FTC claims um, will the FTC simply argue that all profits are for, are fraudulent and and that none are actually legitimate and you know will will legislative action or intent play a role in the argument I mean as I said lose a textual opinion and I just don't see the conservative wing of the court supporting a non-textual analysis of, of section 13b and and of course you know, and this relates to Shire, I mean, can the FTC use Section 13B to prosecute past conduct? Um, you know, uh, so to me, I I, I think, uh, you know, there are a lot of unanswered questions here, and, and we're going to have to stay tuned in order to get those answers. In the meantime, of course, uh, I don't see the FTC slowing down in their efforts to uh, seek monetary relief in cases where they think it's warranted.
3: Great. Thank you so much, John. Um, Barron, what's your reading of the Lou case and what impact do you believe it will have on FTC going forward?
1: Well, I, I second John's summary. I will say on a high level that that case is, yes, about the text of the SEC Act, um, but it's also about this uh, cons- larger constitutional question that the court started to address in Kokesh of when, where the line is between uh, restitution, and penalties. And nothing in lieu should be surprising to someone who read Kokesh carefully because the court in Kokesh uh, was very careful to say that while the the disgorgement award in that case uh, amounted to a penalty and thus triggered the statute of limitations, uh, the court did not in Kokesh uh, resolve a larger question of, of how that would be applied in general. And in lieu, they simply said, uh, they, in my view, they effectively rewrote the SEC's uh, relevant statutory provision to read into it uh, the constraints that the court found would be necessary to ensure that the awards were actually consistent with the, the common law approach the, uh, to, uh, to equity. Uh, and in that sense, um, you could imagine something similar happening uh, for the FTC, uh, that is to say, if the FTC were to uh, hew closely to that approach, and to ensure that money went back to consumers, and it wasn't the it wasn't more than the amount uh, of the actual ill-gotten gains, which is the the total net profits. Uh, that I think could address the constitutional uh, dimension of co and new. But as John noted repeatedly, uh, there's more going on here than just that question. Uh, there are also some very significant statutory questions about how the FTC's uh, uh, powers are structured here and I when I go back and I look at the um FTC versus uh, AMG Capital Management case at the Ninth Circuit uh where the Ninth Circuit had previously uh taken an approach to say that the FTC could get remedies uh disgorgement remedies under section 13b um judge O'Scanlon in his uh concurrence uh, said uh, that while while that decision had to stand, he was very troubled by uh, the questions raised by Kokesh and by statutory interpretation questions uh, that still remain. Uh, and those basically are, and I'll just very briefly quote here, he notes that allowing the FTC to, to get monetary relief under 13B circumvents the procedural protections in Section 19, which is that you have to get uh, a cease and desist order first, uh, that defines uh, uh, the defines uh, what what happened in that case, uh, or to promulgate a rule that defines the practices uh, ex ante. And essentially, what he's saying there is that the uh, setting aside those constitutional questions that Kokesh raised and that Lou partially answered, uh, he still remains troubled by the FTC circumventing of the the structure of the Act. And when John talked about the uh, conservatives on the court, uh, their reliance on text. Uh, I think that's that's what I think the FTC needs to be worried about here. I think that the, to put it bluntly, the approach the agency has taken to uh, enforcement in this area uh, might be a good idea. It might it might be constitutional if it's done in the right way, uh, with those the limits we've discussed. But it doesn't really resemble what's in the act. And in that sense, I've said this for several years. I think the act just has to be rewritten. Congress. Uh, Needs to to go in and um, update this language to produce something that um, that is a lot more clear and specific about when the agency can get uh, which kinds of relief. Uh, and if you just look at if you compare 13B and section 19 with the provisions that have been written more recently, like for the CFPB, they they look completely different uh, because uh, CFPB Act uh, basically describes in the text what the practice of the FTC has been, but that's not what the FTC Act says. And and uh, those are problems that the FTC just cannot remedy through changing its approach or even issuing a policy statement that describes how they're going to, uh, to do things. As long as they keep using Section 13B to get uh, this sort of uh, relief for consumers, uh, they risk a court finding that 13B really only authorizes preliminary Relief, which is what the text says, and they're effectively getting final relief, uh, which is what Section 19 is supposed to be for after all those procedural hurdles have been cleared.
3: Great, thanks so much, Baron. Um, so we discussed the uh, Luke case, which um, is related to the SEC. Um, John, um, are there cases pending at the Supreme Court right now regarding FTC remedial authority? What should listeners be out on the lookout uh, for?
1: Well, I think that the thing that we're all looking uh,
5: to is we're trying to uh, we're curious whether or not the Supreme Court is going to accept cert uh, in in FTC v. Credit Bureau. I mean that I think is is a big the big question right now
0: uh, for us all.
3: Great. Does anyone have any other uh, comments on the SEC versus Lou um, case? If not, we could turn to process.
4: I I would, let me, this is James. I just wanted to add one, one quick thing. And kind of in a, um, a, about Lou and, you know, thinking about the, the net, the net, you know, the, the profits versus the net revenues, which is what the, the FTC takes and, 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 i I just wonder you know again how this will will be applied, given that there's language in lieu um about not being able to use not being able to deduct expenses from uh that 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 are involved in the 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 um uh the the fraudulent enterprise that the the extent to which you know this will actually in in some ways maybe help right the shift uh or at least create a, a a a clearer demarcation between uh pure fraud, uh which is where the this thirteen B got started, and then the application of thirteen B to legitimate products. I think we'll talk about that a little more, but uh, you know, since we're talking about Lou, uh I, I'm and we'll see how that'll that'll be applied going forward and I think that is a is something uh interesting that John brought up. and,
1: and if I may on this point, the court specifically uh, talks about this in two sentences that are uh, uh, necessarily going to have to be fleshed out in the future. They say it is true that when the entire profit of a business or undertaking results from the wrongdoing, a defendant may be denied the inequitable deductions, such as for personal services. But that exception requires ascertaining whether expenses are legitimate or, where, or whether they are merely wrongful gains under another name. Uh, I, I think that's what. Uh, James is, is talking about there. And I just wanna reiterate, uh, 13B uh, had, a, had a very clear purpose, which was dealing with, uh, with hardcore fraud cases and getting orders for uh, relief uh, quickly. Uh, and it has essentially uh, been, been used instead as the FTC's approach to all cases. I, I, that's the problem that I was describing in the mismatch between the FTC's approach and the text.
3: Great. Um, thanks. Um, I'd like to get Andrew in this conversation on process. Um, Andrew, you're were you were at Bureau of Economics. Um, the Bureau does a lot of calculations on various uh, monetary relief uh, issues for the agency. Um, can you describe generally um, how the FTC calculates um, equitable monetary relief? Um, and maybe you could also touch upon um civil penalties and uh order violations
2: as well sure uh that's a lot, so I'm gonna take some shortcuts there but uh but i'll I'll do my best to at least highlight some big issues uh first of all uh I need to be clear, I'm speaking for myself, I'm not representing the view of the commission or any individual commissioner all right uh so i'm gonna leave for James to elaborate or maybe set up a fight um about the rationale for Uh, relief monetary relief and and monetary awards Um, but just as to to kind of set the stage um, in my view the regulation of markets you know what we do is it's all about making markets work and there are two effects that uh, monetary awards of various natures have one is going to be ex-ante deterrence for inefficient behavior right if people have this expectation they're going to get smacked by a big fine that's going to hopefully deter them uh, from stuff that we've decided is is bad for consumers and bad for markets. Um, Second of all, uh, if that behavior occurs anyway, there's an ex post taking the money or taking some some money, uh, whatever you might call it, can act as an ex post correction of the market distortions that that inefficient behavior uh, imposes. So I think James is going to get into that a little bit more, but just to set the stage. All right. So The Bureau of Economics provides the commission with, typically provides the commission with an estimate of the injury, the harm associated with whatever the alleged practices are. Um, More recently, we've also been increasingly providing an ill-gotten gain estimate. We had been focused on the injury because we're really trying to uh, provide the commission with, with two uh With the answer to sort of two questions, one, how important is this case? like how should we prioritize uh our limited resources, and so, having an estimate of the injury associated with the practice helps the commission understand kind of where the where the case falls in terms of its priority uh but the other aspect of this is of course, goes into redress right we're trying to to figure out um you know how much consumers were were injured by these uh, practices, which goes into this question of uh, restitution. So the other thing I should be clear on is there's a fair amount of legal sausage making that goes into the actual awards, uh, as a number of the other people on the, the call can can probably get into. I'm gonna leave that to them and basically just talk about the uh, what we provide the commission as an input into that process. So in terms of injury, what we really are looking at is uh, what is the difference in consumer welfare with the practices and without the practices. So you always have to sort of know what actually is going on, and you also have to uh, set out what the most plausible counterfactual to those practices would be. So we don't just want to say, oh, well, you know, at least from an economic standpoint, You know, I don't say, oh, well, somebody said something false, Uh, therefore, you know, all consumers that purchase the product are injured. That may be the case, uh, but it's not necessarily the case. So speaking very broadly, we look at at two parts of injury, typically. Uh, You can think about most of the practices that the FTC is concerned about uh, involve a shift upward, sort of unwarranted shift upward in demand, at least in the the eyes of consumers. And so that induces both potentially a greater willingness to pay for the product, but also attracts more consumers to that product. And we look at both of those things. So we're trying to estimate uh, how many consumers purchased the product that wouldn't have purchased the product, but for the uh, alleged bad practices, and also did those practices induce uh, uh, a price increase? So you can think about if, if uh, more people are attracted to a product, it may have changed the shape of demand in a way that allows the firm to, to raise price. Uh, and that, in my mind at least, is, is an injury associated with, um, you know, it's causally related to, to the practices in question. So we, we provide those things to the, the commission um, one point that I would like to make is that injury to consumers is not necessarily the same thing as ill gotten gains. In fact, in some cases these are completely unrelated. Um, if you think about fraud or what people think about as fraud, right? There's some sort of practice that we just know hurts consumers, right? So I offer to sell you a unicorn. I take your money. I don't give you a unicorn, right? We don't have to do much to understand that that's injurious. And there, the amount of money that the the firm takes in, the revenue they get, is exactly equal to the uh, the injury of consumers, right? They paid a bunch of money in, didn't get anything back out. And so their ill-gotten gains and injury are, are kind of right on top of each other. And we don't have to worry too much about whether they're legitimate costs of marketing fictional creatures. More complicated cases arise when you have a, a legitimate product that a firm lies about. So they oversell the product. So for example, you may have uh, a perfectly functional uh, pair of sneakers that somebody says is made in the U.S., falsely says is made in the U.S.A. There, it becomes more difficult to understand injury because it's likely that some consumers didn't care so much about the made in the U.S.A. claim. Uh, They just wanted a pair of sneakers, were willing to pay that price. So trying to disentangle how consumers valued it and which consumers valued that product relative to those that were actually injured by the claim is is sometimes complex. It certainly requires a lot more data, but there are tools like difference-in-difference difference, uh, calculations or hedonic calculations or sometimes even surveys that can help us tease out uh, what that injury is. But there, there you start to see sort of a divergence between ill-gotten gains and injury. Um, probably one of the hardest Uh, questions in terms of the relationship between ill-gotten gains and injury would be in some kind of privacy and uh, marketing campaign. So, for example, if a firm deceptively gathers a bunch of personal data from consumers and then uses that to sell advertising uh, to to advertisers, the harms and the injury are potentially and, and seems plausibly orthogonal right, the amount of money that you can collect from firms that are willing to sell uh, uh, to consumers to reach those consumers isn't going to be related in any way to the amount of harm that people might feel from being subjected to those uh, the, that marketing if they didn't want to be. Um, so there, you're really talking about two radically different numbers that aren't really going to be related to each other. The final thing I'll, I'll say just in terms of kind of ratcheting difficulty is in terms of nascent harms so the the thought experiment that i'll leave you with that has uh certainly provided at least entertainment for me for many years is suppose that uh a fraudster purports to sell you fire insurance for your house takes a thousand dollars goes to vegas blows it all on on a not very not very long trip I never actually, you know, purchase insurance for your house, and your house doesn't burn down. Are you injured? And the question that that I think is relevant there is how much would a cons- if a consumer knew that this was occurring, how much would the consumer pay to mitigate that risk? And the answer would probably be the thousand dollars, you know, paid to somebody to actually insure their house. Um, but because that the outcome of that uh, hypothetical is that the house didn't burn down it's often hard to describe exactly what the injury would be. And certainly there seem to be some interesting legal questions, which I'm not going to try to uh, characterize given that I'm an economist, not not an attorney. Um, But there's some interesting legal questions there about how that that works. Uh, And that's where I'll stop.
3: Great, Andrew, that was um, quite informative. Um, James, so we have about 20 minutes left. Um, I wanna turn it over to you to talk about uh, the rationale um on several of the remedies that um Andrew discussed and then we'll turn it back over uh to John and Barron.
4: Yeah, sure. I'll just I mean Andrew uh, uh it um remind, you know, hearing Andrew talk I mean I said uh it hasn't been it's actually been about a year now since I was was in there but we had many of these discussions internally over uh 2018 and 19, so it's kind of uh uh, brings back uh, uh, good times, but uh, and and we've talked a lot a lot about this stuff, and I think actually Andrew and I are in in, in probably agreement. He mentioned a disagreement. Uh, I think uh, so, and he covered a lot of the grounds. I I would just say that, you know, my my view on the remedies, and 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 completely agree with Andrew. You know, from an economist standpoint, you know, we think that. Um, <clears throat> It's about should be remedies should be about deterrence. I mean, it doesn't mean that we're cold-hearted and don't want consumers who are fleeced to get their 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 money back. But it's it's really um, it's really about if uh, the reason you use a remedy is to set up an incentive that's going to uh, um, uh, somehow create uh, that's going to affect future behavior. Uh, so um, what we you know harms-based remedies are, are typically the 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 gold standard uh in in when we think about the economics of sanctions is that we wanna especially where the line between legal and illegal behavior is unclear uh you know say sort of a negligence type standard you want to set harm you wanna set the penalty equal to harm and that way you don't over deter firms so firms will you know you often hear uh here is a bad thing that oh well that that if you if you if you set the price too low, then it just becomes the the you know the cost. Set a fine too low, then it just becomes the price of doing business. Well, you know, in many ways, that's what we want. We we when I say we, I mean you know. So from an economic standpoint, you, if if there's if there's a practice that's going to create a hundred uh, you know create a hundred thousand dollars in 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 value, and going to create fifty thousand dollars in harm, uh, you set the fine equal to fifty thousand dollars. And you hope the firm goes ahead and does it, and in that way the the fine becomes a cost of doing business, and that's a good thing. Uh, um, so with that as a as a background, I think the problem with uh, 13B, and a shameless plug for a paper that uh, Bruce Kobayashi and I have up on SSRN um, uh, uh, about about this, is that you know 13B, and and, and as Andrew pointed out, I think it, the the way it's been applied by courts. It works very well in the pure fraud context, where you know the the way what 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 happens is the court will take you know you get net the FTC is entitled at least to a presumption of net uh, revenues, which are total revenues minus uh, refunds and chargebacks. And if you're somebody selling a unicorn or a fake diet pill, you know something that's just pure pure fraud. So every ounce, every dollar that's spent on that is and you get zero in return, you get a you know, a sugar pill when you said it's uh you know uh, something that that they, 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 they cures cancer or uh, then that it, that makes sense. I mean that's that's there the, the the consumer harm is every dollar I spent because I got nothing uh <clears throat> there nothing in return and everybody no one would be in that market but for the lie. So when you've got pure fraud, you've essentially got the lie has created the 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 market where it gets more complicated and again, Andrew talked about this and where uh is is when you're talking about legitimate legitimate products um this is where this is the this is where thirteen b or at least the, the judicial application of thirteen b falls apart because rather than focusing on Uh, It it should focus on the marginal impact of the deception. Now, again, with fraud, the marginal impact of the deception is creating the entire market. With a legitimate product, let's say, uh, you know, a juice product that oversells some of its health benefits from some of the, you know, it's done some studies that suggest some uh, uh, benefits to to your heart, uh, and it oversells those, and um, will then you've shifted out the demand curve, and you've drawn some people into the market, and maybe the price goes up, uh, and so some infra-marginal consumers are paying a premium. That is quite – that's a different level – that's a different type of harm. You've got marginal – the harm to the marginal consumers is the difference between the price they paid and the value they got. There are going to be a lot of consumers who would still be in the market – um, with or without the health claim, the problem is is the way that the current um, the current state of 13b, or at least the the normal kind of burden shifting framework that is set up by the that has been set up by the courts uh, since the since as it's developed uh, you know since the 80s when this was first used, where the FTC essentially gets a presumption of what's called widespread reliance. So what does this mean in in the liability part of the case? The FTC gets a presumption of materiality for express claims, or intended implied claims, or claims dealing with health and safety, and some other types. So essentially, they they never really have to prove the claim is material. They get to rely on a presumption that it's material. Uh, What's more, is the FTC only have to show that a significant minority of consumers took away the false claim. So. You know courts have gone as low as ten percent i that's maybe not the norm, but the point is is you don't even need a majority of consumers to have been fooled, and then you don't have the f t c doesn't have to provide any proof that those fooled consumers actually changed their behavior. They wouldn't have bought the product but for the lie That is what's shown in liability or or really a non showing in liability. then it's transferred over to the remedy stage of the case where the court says, well because you've shown that there's been a disseminated material representation, the FTC enjoys a presumption that anyone who's seen that representation was fooled into buying the product. Uh, So what this would mean in the context of a legitimate product is the FTC, at least the way the courts have interpreted the application of 13B in this burden-shifting framework, is that the FTC is entitled to all the revenue or the net revenue – uh, total revenue minus chargebacks and refunds from the, everybody in the market, not just those marginal consumers who were fooled into coming into the market or not just the upcharge to marginal consumers, which in the context of a um, legitimate product, a product that has a very robust demand absent, say, some kind of overselling of a health claim, that is, thats that is that. Leads to a remedy that's far in excess of harm, which is going to be over-deterring. So I think that's, to me, the primary, and from an economic standpoint, the primary problem with the way that courts have applied the FTC Act. And John can talk much more about this because this is what he does for a living. But because the courts apply 13B this way, this gives in in uh, consent in settlement negotiations. Which you know most of the vast majority of cases are settled. This gives the FTC kind of this cudgel to extract uh, settlements because they can say, well, if this litigates, here's what I'm entitled to. I and so this this in the background also is going to impact the amount of um, the amount of money that's extracted in in a settlement. So I'll I'll leave it at that. I know we have limited time, and I'll turn it back over to uh, to, to you, Setlana, and Baron and John.
3: Great. Uh, Thanks so much, James. Um, John, do you want to pick it up from there in terms of your view on the proper calibration between harms and remedies being an FTC uh, practitioner?
5: Yeah, a couple of comments uh, about that. And, uh, you know, one thing I think it's worth having a look at is just the the trend, you know, the, the linear progression of of settlement amounts uh, in FTC cases over the years and, and I think it was 2010 when uh commissioner or then I guess chairman Leibowitz uh, announced the countrywide settlement which was a 108 million dollar settlement that was uh intended to remedy injuries related to the company's alleged predatory lending so it was a it was a big deal for those of you who remember it and it was um At the time, and I don't think I'm mistaken, it was by far the biggest settlement that the FTC had ever announced. It was for conduct that was universally considered to be extremely harmful to uh, consumers, especially low-income consumers. Uh, Before that, I think that the biggest award was maybe $70 million, and and I think it involved an AT&T order. And that was kind of the what we were working with back then and then it just really things just exploded and since then i mean you see the headlines all the time I mean, 100 million, 200 million, one hundred million two hundred million three hundred million and what you're seeing when you see those headlines you can be assured that if you're in a negotiating position with the ftc that that there are many 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 cases where these types of amounts are, are being bantered about and and I think, um, really, it's kind of if there's a factor that's contributed to where we are now on 13B, uh, I, I think that this is certainly one of them, if not a, a really uh, a very predominant factor. It's the is the amount that the FTC has been seeking. I think under uh, Chairwoman uh, Ramirez, uh, there there was a dramatic shift. In, in, and what we were seeing, um, if you're on the respondent side, is uh, we were seeing the FTC uh, seeking to hold defendants liable for for the losses that consumers suffered, uh, and and they were often, you know, the initial uh, conversations around what those losses might might be uh, included very little information about you know how how it was calculated. Uh, And certainly it didn't focus on on net profits that defendants gained from the allegedly false or misleading conduct. So um, it it can be, you know, a very, very frustrating thing. And I think that when, if you're representing a respondent, um, you know, that I think tends to harden positions and drive you to litigation when, uh, you know, the opening position of, of the commission is that you return every single dollar that you ever made especially when as you heard from Andrew just a short while ago that there are categories uh and there are situations where you know a company might be delivering a benefit to consumers uh despite what the FTC might allege is, is uh you know false or or deceptive conduct so i guess you know in a going forward basis i mean would uh, if you're in my position having represented respondents now for 30 years I mean what you really the thing that you really want to see are, you know, concrete methods of calculating harm. I mean you wanna have that discussion. You wanna understand exactly how they're arriving at, at their number. Uh and and you know, I think that would be a, a major advance. I think it would it would it would tend to um shrink the time that is required to negotiate reasonable settlements. It would I think uh it, it would relieve a lot of the pressure uh on on both sides when it comes to uh injury calculations the last thing i'll say because i know we have, have i just want to mention very quickly about congress and and 13b um i think that it's as i think everyone knows uh or maybe you, you don't know uh there isn't elite, and you guys correct me if i'm wrong but last i checked there wasn't there wasn't a, a bill in congress uh that was intended to 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 uh provide the FTC with uh with authority uh to uh to seek uh disgorgement a remedy and change their the the language of 13b um and but i think that there there was there were bills for that really responded to Lou on the SEC side and there was bipartisan support so it seems to me curious what you all think that that legislation might be on the way. I do know that the FTC has proposed legislation that would would provide this authority, that would extend the statute of limitations, uh, but uh, as far as I know, I don't think that there is a sponsor yet or a bill that has been introduced in the House or the
1: Senate. Uh, If I can respond to that, uh, I've written a lot uh, with Jeff Nanny and uh, a few others over the years about FTC reform. The FTC has been playing a very dangerous game here. They are essentially uh, refusing to uh, go ask for legislation or or even make lawmakers aware of the fact that they may very quickly need legislation uh, because their current practice has so little bearing, uh, so little relation to what the act currently says. And there are uh, a slew of other reforms that are long overdue that should have been made uh, perhaps in the late 90s. Uh, the last time the FTC was actually reauthorized was I think either 1996 or 1998. And that used to be the vehicle by which Congress regularly uh, checked in and made minor modifications to these uh, acts and that has stopped happening. And uh, and I think that they the agency is just uh, hoping that they'll be able to slide by into the last possible minute and then if there is a crisis that they'll be able to get legislation passed that will only fix this issue, uh, and that's—I uh, think—that's a, a bad idea. It puts consumers at risk, um, and it's also—it's uh, uh, a missed opportunity for this chairman to leave a real legacy. Uh, with this, uh, the agency spent a lot of time doing workshops on uh, how its uh, approach should change, and the one topic that they really uh, waited till the end to discuss and, and didn't really cover very much was was remedies and their uh, investigation uh, approach and so on all these questions that are intertwined about what their statutory authority is uh, and i think they had an opportunity to try to lead the way in uh, updating and modernizing the act in a way that would allow the agency to aggressively go after hardcore fraud cases as we all agree should happen but also it understands that the agency is going to use similar powers in the act to deal with uh, cases of ambiguous conduct, where a company might have made a mistake, but they were trying in good faith to do something they thought was good for consumers that maybe ended up not being. Uh, And that requires a different approach, especially because the uh, line drawing exercise is becoming harder and harder as the agency starts to regulate more and more technological change, data security, privacy, uh, the design of features that determine whether kids can access your, your device and buy things on Amazon. Uh, those sorts of questions are now being judged under the same framework that the agency is applying for everything else. And as we saw with the Facebook settlement, uh, the agency is now dealing with those at the scale of hundreds of millions of Americans in a single case, which is how you got to the agency uh, negotiating a settlement of $5 billion in the Facebook case. And the remarkable thing about that case is not actually that it was $5 billion, it's that there were no limiting principles at all, that that settlement could have just as well been $5 trillion if the company had been willing to settle it and not to litigate. And to me, that that's just a, an indication that this process is really broken, and uh, Congress needs to step in and and update this and provide some real guidance as to how the agency is going to apply its powers and what kind of relief it's going to get in what cases, uh, because otherwise, as, uh, as has been noted, uh, the agency is just going to settle almost all the cases it brings uh, with the threat of colossally large uh, penalties or, uh, or, or court-ordered remedial uh, equitable relief.
3: Great. Um thanks. Um Colton, do you want to go ahead and open up the line for questions? Um and while you do that, um I will ask uh one other question I had.
0: Sounds good. We're now going to audience questions. In a moment you'll hear a prompt indicating that the four mode has been turned on. After that, to request the four, enter star and then pound on your telephone keypad. When we get to your request, you'll hear a prompt please state your name and affiliation and then ask your question. We will answer all questions in the order in which they are received. All right, Svetlana, do you want to go to that first question while we wait for our first audience question to come in?
3: Sure. Um, Thanks, Colton. So, um, Barron set up the inquiry quite nicely in his last remarks in terms of um, Congress perhaps stepping in and delineating some uh, parameters uh, over how FTC calculates the monetary remedies in cases, uh, not grounded in outright fraud. And so I just wanted to ask, uh, the panelists, uh, what recommendations uh, might you have for Congress in this regard, uh, to, to add, add transparency, due process, and the like in, uh, current FTC practice. Um, John, I'll start with you and then go to, um, James, Andrew, and Barron.
5: Well, I, I I think I can answer that in one sentence. I think Congress should clearly lay out what methods of redress are equitable and are covered under section thirteen
4: B.
3: Great. James?
4: Yeah, I I would say um I would be happy I mean I would I would like Congress to lay I'd be happy if Congress gave the FTC civil penalty penalty authority, but Limited it to be calibrated to consumer harm. I, I'm sure that won't won't happen. Uh, barring that, barring congressional action, and let's say that everything remains the status quo, the Supreme Court doesn't take cert, everything, Congress doesn't feel the need to act. act uh, I think that at the very least, it would be, uh, you know, again, have the FTC uh, adopt some type of formal guidance that that would that would again make um make consumer harm the 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 load uh because i i am concerned that in the context of which you know both john and Barron had laid out really well is that you know in the context of of legitimate products the current application of of 13b is is uh, is is out of control and and something should be done to 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 rein it in if congress doesn't act it'd be nice to see the ftc try to tie their own hands
3: Great. Um, Andrew?
2: Uh, I'm listening with great interest, but I think I'm going to, uh, demur.
3: <laughs> Thought so. Just that I ask, Um, uh, how about you? Well,
1: I, I just want to reiterate because this, this is very confusing to people. Uh, we've now switched to talking about penalties, whereas previously we were talking about equitable relief and, and the difference between the two, uh, is, uh, uh, constitutional. I mean that's the whole point of Kokesh. Uh if you are it's one thing to get uh the remedies for consumers that, that uh, Liu allowed. Uh it's quite another thing to uh, come up with an uh, essentially uh with a number that is not is not uh equivalent to the net gains minus the uh, expenses right that that's what what uh what lou is about and uh i think andy noted earlier that uh that there's value in deterrence to having additional penalties it's pretty clear it's why we have civil penalties for certain things so uh, no one on this call is, is against those uh, the question is when are they appropriate and i i think they're appropriate uh when you have a level of notice as a regulated entity as to what the law requires that it's reasonable for the government to not just tell you to stop what you're doing through injunctive relief, and not just get money back that uh, consumers might be owed, but to impose additional penalties on some basis per transaction per user, whatever is appropriate in that circumstance. That that uh, changes very significantly what kind of uh, clarity the agency has to provide to regulated parties, and right now. What the Act says is uh, you can do that where you have a rule uh, or you've provided notice to regulated parties of a specific uh, decision and the facts in the new fact pattern are directly on, on all fours with the thing that they're being uh, penalized for. And that I think is basically right. It's just that the agency has effectively circumvented that uh, framework uh, by using this the approach that's taken today to uh, discouragement where the disgorgement effectively serves as a penalty uh even though it you know could be under underlu could be tailored back to being something that is uh less than that uh and also by the way i just want to point out there um in Kokesh where the court noted that uh the sec's uh approach to uh to getting uh monies for for consumers uh amounted to a penalty it wasn't only because the uh sec wasn't giving all the money back to consumers it was also because they labeled the company a wrongdoer. And that that is a really important concept. It did not get discussed at all in the. Uh, but that's essentially how the FTC works in everything it does. It The real penalty uh, is not the monetary penalty that the Act limits to those circumstances we have discussed. The real penalty is uh, being branded as uh, as uh, weak on privacy or data security or whatever the issue might be. Uh, and having your uh, companies uh, suffer terrible public relations harm from that, where the loss to your shareholders uh, could far exceed any monetary penalty that the company uh, might suffer uh, from the FTC for that conduct if there were a rule in place. So uh, I'm just saying this uh, there are some really significant constitutional questions that are still lurking here uh, that Lou does not resolve, and that uh, I think Congress. Should resolve by uh, again making clear where the line is between uh, whether the company has notice of what 's required and uh, an agency uh, it does have rulemaking authority today uh, it has chosen not to use it for a long time uh, because it finds it difficult uh, but that's not that 's not a good enough excuse. I think the agency should be encouraged to use those MAGMOS powers uh, where appropriate uh, and if somebody wants to have a a conversation about uh, changes on the margins to make MAGMOS somewhat easier. Uh, I'm happy to have that conversation, uh, but that doesn't mean really we need to default to the simplistic argument that many people make that the agency should just be given across the board rulemaking authority, which is really inappropriate for the inherently flexible and open-ended nature of, uh, of the unfairness and deception standards.
3: Got it. Thank you. And just a uh, plug, I have an upcoming program on FTC rulemaking on July eighth. So uh please be on the lookout for notice from RTP on that program. Um Colton, do we have any uh questions in queue?
0: We do. We have one and we'll try to get to that uh in a moment. I just want to let you know that we we should aim to wrap up by three fifteen, uh so I'll keep uh your answers as brief as possible. Thank you. Hi, this is Sam Ravine. I'm I'm with the FTC.
6: Um, I've heard a number of you talk about the importance of anchoring our monetary judgments to consumer harm and that if Congress were to act uh, on 13B, that would be a good way to fix it. And just wondering your thoughts, you know, so- something we've encountered is that in, in a lot of these cases, you know, I think Andrew Stivers mentioned some of the made in USA matters. The harm really isn't to consumers. It's about diverting business from honest competitors. And one of the purposes of ill-gotten gains is to level the playing field somewhat there. And as I think all of you know, this is actually expressly incorporated into our policy statement on deception, uh, that we consider harm to competitors just as serious as harm to consumers, or at least we consider it a factor. So I'm just wondering, for those who are pushing to limit our ability to recover to consumer harm, how we ensure that businesses who are making false claims at the expense of their competitors are not advantaged in so doing. Uh,
3: thanks, Sam, for that question. Who would like to weigh in?
4: Um, well, this is James. I'll just say, I mean, two things very quickly. Um, one, uh, well, the competitor would have a Lanamac claim, arguably, so they're going to have a private right of action. Uh, you know, for instance, Palm sued, um, what's, uh, sued uh, Coca-Cola in a pretty famous case uh, because Coca-Cola had marketed a pomegranate juice that was apparently made mostly of apple and blueberry juice or something like that. So, um there are private rights of action if uh uh for for that and then I think um you know the the extent to which money's divert, you know, if if a consumer it's going to be the the consumer harm is going to be the same as the 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 business harm to a first approximation at least because if a consumer is being fooled into buying from firm A rather than firm B uh and then the the remedy is all the money that the consumer paid to firm B then um then in that case in that in that case or I'm sorry to, to firm A uh firm A I mean the point is is not so much about getting money back into the uh, to the to the firm who uh the the honest firm if the point is about uh creating efficient deterrence it doesn't really matter where the money goes and all it really matters is that the 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 firm uh the, the fraudulent firm ends up you know with a w w having to pay a you know call it a penalty call it a rem- equitable remedy but, but write a check uh that is sufficient to uh that going forward to deter other firms from engaging in similar conduct i mean that would be an efficient deterring remedy. So, so those would be my two quick reactions to the to the to the question.
5: And I would add, um, you know, it 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 seems like it'd be very difficult to actually estimate harm to competition in uh, in a situation where we're focusing potentially on on false and deceptive advertising claims. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, in the Lanimax setting, and as was just mentioned, I mean, it's. It's very infrequent that you actually have money damages based upon uh, harm uh, that a company might have in, uh, incurred uh, as a result of a competitor's false claim. So, uh, to me, it's it's just so speculative, and would be re- would be really difficult to to come up with an accurate estimation.
1: Well, I I'll thank Sam for raising the point. Uh it is uh specifically noted as he says in the uh, deception policy statement in footnote 58. Uh and it's worth thinking about. It's a hard question. Uh I think you'd have to really carefully parse you uh, because that that um will tell you what the outer boundary is constitutionally on uh on what can constitute equitable relief. And uh I hadn't thought about this question before today. Um So I I reserve the right to change my response, but I think uh, as an initial matter, I'm not sure how you can uh, arrive at that end through uh, what the court says in lieu. And I I could be wrong. We all have to reread it.
3: Alrighty. Um, Colton, do we have any other questions in queue?
0: Uh, we don't. We should probably head to some very quick, pithy, final remarks from our great panelists today.
3: Oh, okay. All righty, guys. Well, thanks, uh, for being on the panel. If anyone has any closing remarks, um, you all could get a, a few seconds.
1: Well, right. I, I just reiterate what I said. Uh, the Act has not been updated significantly in uh, over 20 years. And it is, it is therefore not surprising that we are seeing all of these uh, these problems uh, pop up now. Um, I really hope that the FTC is not left uh, holding the bag uh, when court takes up one of the cases we've been discussing and, uh, and really strikes at the heart of its ability to protect consumers. This is an avoidable problem. Uh, if this chairman is not going to solve it, if this administration and this Congress are not willing to do so. Uh, the next Congress uh, needs to be really focused on this and uh, ideally not wait for the Supreme Court.
3: Um all right, So with that, I wanted to thank all of our expert panelists on today's call. I also want to thank Sam for his question and Colton and RTP for sponsoring the program today. So this concludes our session. Thank you all for listening in.
2: Thanks, Adelana. Thank you.
3: Thank you, Svet. Thank you. On
2: behalf of the Federal Society's Regulatory Transparency Project, thanks for tuning in to the Fourth Branch Podcast. To catch every new episode when it's released, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spreaker. For the latest from RTP, please visit our website at regproject.org. That's R E G Project.org.
6: This has been a FedSoc audio production.